It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down so, uh, to old Maui. So, hi, uh, welcome to Call Him Ishmael. Uh, this is, that, is, is, is that what we're going with? Oh, shoot. Well, we need to be sure about the name before we start, because i got to say it. Well, we could always you could always leave a pause, and then we obviously edit in whatever one we decide on. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't need to leave a pause. I could just do the thing that I already did and then edit out this exclamation. Or we could leave all this in. I mean, this is very much in keeping with the book, so I <sighs> strongly support... Uh, pointless metafictional asides. Okay, so welcome to the as yet not fully named Moby Dick podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Tilly. Hi, I'm Ben. Um, and uh, Ben and I are going to be recording this show, uh, reading through Moby Dick. Um, or the whale. Moby Dick or the whale. Uh, it's going to be a, a fun sea adventure for all. Uh, and also a weird Gnostic mystery cult. I promise. <laughs> no, really. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Look, look forward to uh, lots of information on that, on Gnosticism from Ben <laughs> from this, I think. Um, well, yes. <laughs> it's in Revelation, people. <laughs> Um, so, uh, it's probably worth introducing just before we start the fact that, uh, I've never actually finished reading Moby Dick before doing this podcast. Um, uh, yeah, I actually, I did read it relatively recently, uh, because our mutual friend, uh, James, who's been a longtime partisan of Moby Dick, uh, convinced me to try it. And after having bounced off of it, I want to say two or three times in high school and then college, uh, I finally actually read it with something like a like fun way of looking at it. And it was great. I really enjoyed this book entirely on like a goofy and fun level as well as, you know, elaborate string boards invol involving, uh, you know, uh, first century uh, heresies. So, <laughs> um, so there's... I, I like and okay, I also just like boats a lot and sailing, so that was part of it. But it really is just a really fun book uh, that I think is horribly presented in terms of how it sort of sits in the American literary canon. Yeah, I I I'd agree with that overall. I mean I so I have read about half of Moby Dick, um, and this podcast is in in part like kind of a structure for me to be able to try to finish Moby Dick. <laughs> it's, it, um, it is big. It's, it's, it's a whale of a book. Rimshot. <laughs> Edit in a rimshot. I will not. Sorry. Um, <sighs> but uh, it, it is like, it is kind of an intimidating book to read, but um, 
you know, I've been reading it on and off for like a few years, ever since you read it and you were having all this fun. And I was like, all right, I'll see what it's about. (laughs) Um, And I mean, uh, I think the reason why I've stuck with it and decided to make a podcast out of it is that I find Ishmael, the figure, really fascinating as a as a literary character, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I hugely agree. And actually, um, that is something I'd like to mention sort of at the start here, which is that the reason why I kept bouncing off of it is that I just didn't get what Ishmael was supposed to be because, you know, the he we're so often exposed to things like, call me Ishmael, and, you know, the that whole thing, that you completely lose any sense of Ishmael as anything but the narrator. And so when I approached the book, I was like, oh, yes, Ishmael, my transparent narrator with no qualities. Wait, why is this book so weird? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the book has the the reputation of having a transparent narrator, per se, but I think that, uh, like, it's very easy to... The way that people are introduced to this in schools, they're not, like... They're not told, hey, this is a book all about, like, one weird guy and his life and his, like, what he has to say about it. Um, but as this sort of monument. Yeah, and specifically you get this, the, like, I'm just thinking here of the Far Side cartoon where uh, someone's yelling, uh, it's the white whale, no, 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 it's a regular black whale, and Ahab is just staring angrily on the deck. The, the way we get introduced to uh, Moby Dick in popular culture is entirely through, I think, the character of Ahab and his obsession, and the book gets presented as a very straightforward little morality play mm-hmm. about Ahab and hunting the white whale and why he's, you know, his, uh, his obsession with vengeance drags the whole ship down. And Ishmael is just sort of the witness to that who ends up telling the story. And I think it's a lot more interesting than that and a lot more complicated and a lot funnier. Yeah, no, I would agree with all those things. Um, I I also just kind of uh, enjoy how... Um, oh, no. The dreaded lip smack. Um, uh, I also enjoy just how, um, like, digressive it is. So this is one of the qualities that I think... All right, actually, uh, the more the more tangents we get on, really, the better. Um, so you you mentioned you mentioned the Far Side, uh, which I definitely remember reading that Far Side cartoon at some point as well. Um, I'm sure. I mean, everyone's read the Far Side. Um, I'm sure that's familiar to our audience. Uh, if not that specific cartoon, then like the way that a Far Side cartoon would draw Ahab, you know. Yeah, um, um, also, maybe we have a cover image now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my, um, the the cartoon that, like, I remember introducing me to Moby Dick as a book is uh, Bone. Did you ever read that, Ben? I, I read, like, some random chapters throughout the series, but I never actually read Bone in any meaningful sense. I heard really good things about it, but, like... I honestly still could not tell you even vaguely what the plot of Bone is. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the plot is kind of confusing, and the way you describe having read it sounds like it would be very confusing, uh, because it does sort of start out as, like, a a funny animal adventure in a forest, and it turns into a high fantasy adventure, like, partway through. 
It really is a printed webcomic. <laughs> it's good, I swear. No, no, um, I, I've heard only good things about it. I read webcomics, damned soul that I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, anyway, the way that Moby Dick plays into Bone is that, you know, uh, in Bone there's these three brothers who are like these weird little cartoon creatures. They're the Bones, right? Yeah, the Bones. Um, and I thought the... I was making a joke there. <laughs> No, that's that's just like what their surname is. There's cool, cool. There's a uh, phone bone, phone bone spelled differently, and phony bone. I believe. Oh, they're Ed, Ed, and Eddie's. It's the, a little bit. Not uh, not entire. I'm just. This is cute. I should probably read Bone at some point. Yeah. Okay. But so the one of them i'm explaining this way too long-windedly but one of them is like obsessed with moby dick and brings a copy of it with him everywhere and i was always trying to get people to talk to him about it or to listen to him read it aloud very um, slowly raising my hand on this side of the uh the microphone by the way but the thing is uh like him reading the book aloud like just even opening it and starting the first few sentences is enough to cause people to fall asleep like it fall me. over yep it's it's you know it's a famously boring book is what i'm trying to say no no it it is also i just feel like this this uh cartoon person i've never read is intensely relatable <laughs> yeah he is um he's a very relatable little creature um no but like okay it's obviously i don't actually think that moby dick is boring uh, but it is, uh, like I said, digressive. Um, it also has the reputation for being very boring. I think in large part because of the meaningful chunks in the middle that are not in any way relate, or they're not related to the plot directly, but are rather explaining how whaling works. Or, in one memorable case, listing every white object Ishmael can think of. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, that's like... Those are digressions, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, those are so, like, central to how this story works structurally. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. That's yep. that's what I think is cool about Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and I, I will say, I do think that there are... I mean, actually, I should probably just state this up front. I think one of the things going on in Moby Dick that's so cool is that Ishmael, our narrator, is terrible at telling a story. Like, actually Mm. garbage at it. And (laughs) part of that is that one of the sort of central ideas that I think is really... Again, I think a large part of Moby Dick is, like, having the right frame of mind when you start reading it makes it so much better. And one of them is just... One of the themes of the book is... The mo- that the things that Ishmael most wants to describe or explain or talk about are unspeakable to him. Uh, he, he either can't uh, find a way to express them because he's a weirdo, or uh, in one case, it's the fact that he's really obviously attracted to another man, um, who he frankly is really, really obvious about from a you know, 21st century perspective. But he, can never, he never actually names that or directly states it. Um, and so I think that the a lot of the digressions and the terrible storytelling is part of the fact that Ishmael can't spit out the things he's actually trying to say, either because he doesn't know how to word them or he doesn't feel they should be said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think all that stuff is, like, 
definitely going on. Um, and, uh, all right. I think we're starting to veer into, like, enough discussion of the actual book that we should probably start talking about the, the actual chapters book. that we're yep, doing. Yep, the actual book. <laughs> that seems reasonable. <sighs> so now uh, it's time to start with the summaries of the text. Yep. Uh, I wrote this up. Uh, and by wrote this up, I mean it's a very sort of impressionistic write-up. Um, I'm definitely going to vary from it as I talk. And Ben is hopefully going to feel free to interrupt me. Yep, I, I promise I will. <laughs> wow, that sounded a lot worse than than it did in my head. Um, so, so um, the very beginning of Moby Dick, as everyone knows, is the line, Call me Ishmael, except the first lines of the book are actually, uh, like, this weird front matter. Ah, um, oh, the weird front matter. So, first there's a section titled Etymology, uh, which gives you the etymology of the word whale. Um, kind of a folk etymology, I think, um, that it supposedly means rolling. Well, um, technically, that it's from Webster's Dictionary. So this is at the time. This might have been the um, the cutting edge of uh, of um, literary science. God, I don't even know where I was going with that. Um, but I have no idea if it was accurate at the time of uh, Moby Dick's writing or the time period some fifty years earlier that he was writing about. Yeah, uh, but you know, um, it's it is it is generally accurate in the sense of I'm pretty sure the word that he's saying or like the, the language families that he's saying the word whale comes from that is the language families that it comes from in the English language um, yep. and stuff like that but Ooh, anyway I, uh, I, I so, actually sorry I just noticed something really cool uh, in looking at it again um, the the Hakluit uh, somebody's uh, etymology for it has this very interesting line about um uh, how if you leave out through ignorance the letter H, which almost alone maketh the signification of the word, you deliver that which is not true. And it's really a weird quotation, because it's not about the etymology, actually, at all. It's just about the idea that the silent letter in the word whale is somehow the most important. And I have no idea if this is a real quotation from someone named Hakluyt, or if uh, Melville invented it. Well... Uh, I can check, uh, really quick on the version of the front matter that I have. It does have, like, some citations. Uh, mm -hmm. he is a real writer. Um, so I think it's fairly likely that this quotation is real. Yep, that, that is fair. I, I don't mean to be quite that paranoid about, uh, Melville. It's just such a, an odd little aside. No, it is worth asking whether quotations are real because, uh, so in the next section, after he lists, um, in addition to listing the etymology, it's also just the words for whale in a bunch of languages, mm -hmm. um, uh, in including some Pacific Islander languages, um, although obviously it's written out, pho like, phonetically in English, mm -hmm. lettering. Um, yeah, anyway, uh... It's also got, you can really tell when the book is from by the way it spells Fiji, like the Fiji Islands. Yeah, yeah, you know, 
almost like but literally before characters have been introduced uh the the issues of like colonialism yeah are present yep um, the um probably worth actually at least mentioning this now and then going into more depth when we are we're hitting it more directly but this book has some weird and kind of interesting but also you know unfortunate ways of thinking about people who are not from Europe. Uh, not maliciously. I, I think that actually a large part of this is Melville attempting to express admiration, but as soon as you have the phrase like, I'm expressing admiration for their primitive grandeur, um, don't? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. So we have to acknowledge that the book is racist uh, from a modern perspective. Um, but I, I do think... It's one of those texts where the question of what would people have made of this at the time is, like, a genuine one. It's not just, like, you know, uh, with, say, Lovecraft or something, where we know exactly what his contemporaries thought of this. Um, First of all, what I'm saying is I think potentially parts of this story would have been perceived as liberatory Mm -hmm. uh, by, like, contemporary readers. But second of all, I'm also saying we have no idea because it just didn't garner enough contemporary readers for that commentary to that exist for us. That is basically true, yeah. Um, um, which is, you know, none of that is to say, like, oh, therefore it's impossible to judge. But just, uh, you know, I think it, it's worth keeping in mind, um, especially, like, uh, when we look at things like how the book treats um, Queequeg's dialogue. Yeah, the... It, it That is a really weird intersection of, like, really outright admiration and stuff that, um, from a modern perspective, and really from most perspectives between then and now, would just be like, oh, wow, that is, um, that's, that's borderline minstrelry, minstrelry, that's just, that's just not cool. Yeah, um, it's, anyway, we should... We should probably talk about those things when they come up, but... It... I agree, but can can we at least read a few of the uh, words for whale that are just, like, particularly fun? Uh, if you insist, although I, you'll just be mispronouncing them. I mean, yes, but the Danish word for whale being vault, sorry, havalt, I, I just really enjoy that. Yeah, also, no, fair enough. Also, the fact that the Icelandic word for whale is whale... But with an uh, no, a um, comma after it, while the English word for whale is oh no, that is also a comma. Never mind, we'll cut that out. I thought that was a oh. period. Uh, yeah, that's my mistake. You, uh, it, it might be harder to cut out little mistakes like that than you think. Oh. Um, which is isn't to say like don't make mistakes. Just <laughs> be aware that your mistakes don't may it, be recorded. Don't expect to be saved from them by by editing. Is what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> um. Well, and, I do uh, think it's it's still very cute that you have whale, Icelandic, and then whale, English, yes. right next to each other in the list. Um, and then the next section is, uh, it's titled Extracts, and it's basically a bunch of uh, quotations about whales from literally any subject matter or any, like, source whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's also got a very interesting little uh, introduction to itself, which is probably the first piece of direct fiction 
in the, no second piece because there's also in the etymology there's something very similar which um, claims that the etymology was supplied by a late consumptive usher to a grammar school and then has this little uh, description of the usher uh, who was ever dusting his old lexicons and grammars with a queer handkerchief mockingly embellished with all the gay flags of all the known nations of the world. And then in the, the extract, it's supplied by a sub-sub-librarian and then has like a, a remarkably in-depth elegy for sub-sub-librarians. Yeah, and so to be clear, these are little like paragraphs that appear before the actual sort of supposed meat of these um, sections. And then they're like going into detail about these imaginary uh, like academic figures who supplied this information to Melville or supplied it to whoever you know in in the in the fiction where this is actually written by a person named Ishmael um it's not clear whether Ishmael produced these extracts or some editor put together Ishmael's writing and these extracts or what yeah i i really think that it's it's worth uh thinking for a second about what what the heck are these just um they're they don't really fit with Ishmael's like um Ishmael's milieu he's you know not really going to be or at least i couldn't imagine him being that wait no that's that's actually incorrect uh because of things we'll get to later but no this i think this absolutely could be supposed to be people ishmael knows or knew uh especially because the actual elegy section is so ishmaelian yeah that's true uh the 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 writing on this little like uh bit about a sub sub librarian is very loving in a way that ishmael tends to be toward his fellow man Yep. It's it's also got the interesting line uh, uh, that uh, these were found wherever, you know, on any book whatsoever, sacred or profane. Therefore, you must not, in every case at least, take the higgledy-piggledy whale statements, however authentic, in these extracts for veritable gospel cytology. There's a title. Higgledy-piggledy whale statements. Oh my goodness. Higgledy-piggledy whale statements. I'm, I'm not uh actually advocating for that. I mean, it's not bad. It might be better than <laughs> Call Him Ishmael. I don't know. I, I swear we had a list of this somewhere. Uh, we did, but I forgot to look at it before yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> same, same. That's fine. Uh, but, yeah, there's also... Um, it's also, I think, in this sub-sub bit... Uh, that feels so weird to say. Um, there's the early bits of Ishmael's weird version of Christianity go on like oh well um i mean this last uh this section where he talks about you know so fairly well poor devil of a sub sub whose commentator i am uh and then sort of talks about this uh the situation of a person who is forever um like an underling you know um i think that there's the really uh, uh thou belongest to that hopeless sallow tribe which no wine of this world will ever warm and for whom even pale sherry would be too rosy strong um 
but at the end talks about, uh, but gulp down your tears and high aloft to the royal mast with your hearts, for your friends who have gone before are clearing out the seven-storied heavens and making refugees of long-pampered Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael against your coming. Here he strike but splintered hearts together. There he shall strike unsplinterable glasses. So it's already got his particular, I mean, I think universalist kind of sense of Christianity and salvation combined with these images of, uh, I mean, basically outcasts and people who don't really fit in, which he, who he really sympathizes with and feels himself among, uh, which uh, when you said that he has a lot of love for his fellow man, he really expresses a lot of that in a Christian syntax, despite being really weird about it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and like this this sort of, you know, uh praising of like the lowly and 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 talking about how they're going to kind of get their due in heaven is not like unfamiliar, I think, to 19th century oh. Christian writing. Oh, absolutely. Uh but but you're absolutely but you're totally right that there is a you know, as we go on, we'll find more and more kind of religious content that uh puts us through a confusing um like confusing gyrations of the brain i guess i would say <laughs> yeah no that's i think that's fair it's ishmael's way of approaching things is really deeply christian but he definitely sort of uh swings off in slightly wild directions i think here the um the bit where he's talking about like chasing the archangels out of heaven uh for the arrival of the sub sub librarians uh it's a little bit of an odd metaphor yeah no it definitely is um it's true do you have any commentary on the actual extracts uh I mean, uh, following on from what we were just saying, there's a bunch of, it starts off with a bunch of biblical quotes. Uh, you know, I think he's got most examples of Leviathan from the Bible. Uh, it's also interesting that he's completely indiscriminate, or at least mostly since he also um, references the Leviathan of, um, shoot, what's it, Hobbes. He, uh, he, so there's a, there's a quotation here that has nothing to do with whales. It's purely the uh, metaphorical use of Leviathan, if I can just find it. Uh, so. Oh, also there's Hamlet's quotation, very like a whale, which is just, just incomprehensibly hey, disconnect. Yeah, exactly. It's the word whale showed up one time. <laughs> And see, immediately my brain starts buzzing with, oh, well, we can compare it to this this one chapter where he talks about images of whales in clouds, and that's a really cool chapter. I'm really looking forward to that chapter. But that's just um, that's just going to the red string board way too soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, uh, Ishmael has a, a special interest. Yes, he um, he has, you might say, a fixation or an obsession. <laughs> But um, here it is. It's uh, the opening of Hobbes's Leviathan is how it's cited. And it's, by art is created that great Leviathan called a commonwealth or state, in Latin civitas, which is but an artificial man. And yeah, I know I, I uh, pronounce Latin terribly, but you know what, live with it. Um, and I think that's a really weird one, because the idea that Leviathan is an artificial man is not really present anywhere 
in the text elsewhere, and neither are theories of governance particularly. It does seem like it's that one is also pretty much just, oh, look, the word Leviathan. Yeah, but it, it just sticks out to me. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. And in general, but yeah, I, I think that the, the, the fact it sticks out to me so much is really much more the fact that there's this sort of, I mean, we've seen, we've talked about the fact that Ishmael has a sort of weirdly religious or weird and also religious perspective on things. And I think that the Leviathan stuff really gets drawn into that or uh, elaborated on through it. Uh, so you get this sort of uh, religious framework where every every Leviathan or thing that looks like a Leviathan or reference to a Leviathan can all fit together in some metaphysical way. And I certainly in reading the book get infected by it. I start trying to make sense of, well, okay, but, but the Hamlet thing can fit in here and, and, and Hobbes can fit in here. And it's it's basically not useful <laughs> yeah but i think it, it is an interesting like the fact that the book elicits that response is one of the things that's cool about it to me um mm -hmm. so are you ready to begin the like moby dick proper uh story of I, well, ishmael um uh, yes there's there's one wait what yeah, and there's a few quotations here that are entirely disconnected from whales, but are from narratives about whale boats. Uh, like, um, if you make the least damn bit of noise, replied Samuel, I will send you to hell, uh, which is from a biography of a mutineer, and it's cited as another version of the whale ship globe narrative, which, it has nothing to do with whales. It, it literally has nothing to do with whales, but it's from a book about a whale ship. Yeah, I think I remember finding some some citation in, at some point. So as I've been reading Moby Dick, I've been using a bunch of different versions of it that have different, uh, like, footnotes. I think I remember reading some footnote that claimed that people think maybe there was a plan for a mutiny to play a bigger role in the um, story of the novel. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's there's a number of like stories about mutinies, mm -hmm. but in the end, I I really can't imagine a mutiny on the Pequod, just given how the book works. Yeah, like or at least not certainly not a successful one. Well, yeah, maybe not. Um, <laughs> the uh, anyway, that I remember seeing as a footnote on this section with the idea being maybe this is why there's these quotations from stories about mutineers. Mm, that that would make sense. Uh, that would definitely make sense. Huh. I do want to do one last thing from this extracts, uh, or convince you to do it, which might is probably harder, which is that the last one that's quoted is a really cool little poem. You want me to read it aloud? A little. Yeah, okay. I could do that. Uh, cool, cool. So this is just cited as whale song. Um, yeah, and it, it's the last one. It's just cited as whale song. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if it's uh, a quotation or original to uh, Melville, but it's certainly really interesting as a, as like the final thing before you read the actual narrative. Oh, the rare old whale mid storm and gale in his ocean home will be a giant in might where might is right and king of the boundless sea. So that is a little 
rhyme to think about. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave you with this. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just think that the um, the phrase "a giant in might where might is right" is really interesting in the context of literally the entire rest of the book. It is very interesting, uh, but. It'll be a while before we see any actual whales, so... Yeah, it's going to be a long time before whales actually show up. You're, you're 100% correct. So, uh, to begin, the first chapter is called Loomings. Um, and this is where the first famous line is. Call me Ishmael. Um, and uh, what Ishmael goes on to tell the reader about is that uh, when he, in the course of things, starts to feel suicidal, uh, his solution for it is to go to the sea. Um, and can, can I just, um, can I uh, bring in, the, the quote actually is really circumspect. Like, he does more or less state when I feel suicidal, but he phrases it as things like, whenever I find myself going, growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and, and goes on and on and on about this, and I honestly, the first two times I read the book, managed to completely miss that, which is just really bad, dumb on my part, just super dumb, well. but... I think the line that makes it really clear is when he says, this is my substitute for pistol and ball. Um, yeah, it's it, it's really direct, but it's circumspect enough that not expecting it, I completely missed it. Uh, but to be clear, uh, don't worry about our new friend Ishmael. Um, <laughs> he's not going to kill himself. He's just going to do something incredibly dangerous and foolhardy, which is sign on to a whale ship. Um and he goes on to say that he thinks nearly everybody has this longing at one time or another. Um, and it becomes clear he doesn't necessarily mean that everyone experiences, like, these depths of despair that he does. Uh, but he does seem to believe that every human being is drawn to water and drawn to the ocean. But and specifically, uh, drawn to the ocean, like, as a self-destructive, if not a, if not precisely a despairing, but as, like, a self-destructive act. Because uh, he says, uh, um, if they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. Which is an impressive claim. It's a big one. Uh... I will say, in his as he goes on to talk about the kinds of different kinds of people who are attracted to water, there are definitely versions of it that sound quite nice. Like, um, here is an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all of the Valley of the Seiko. So he's talking about the idea that you need to add water to a painting to make it be romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, there's an idea that this attraction can be positive, although not that something being romantic, uh, cuts it aside from being self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so this is really actually quite a lot of the length of this chapter is it explaining how... In, in detail and going on to, into little tangents and little vignettes of different people and how they're all attracted to water. People from 
all over uh, the um, like American country that he's familiar with, and people of all kinds of backgrounds. Um, and then when he gets to the end of all of it, he starts citing uh, classical things as well. So there's a bit of a sense of including everything in time as well, although obviously from a very 19th century perspective. That... Yeah. He really, uh, he really loves rhetorical questions. Yes. Uh, especially ones that assume that you, the reader, have like a really solid but also particularly uh, staid and classics-focused uh, literary education. Yes. Like, he'll... He will just throw out, um, in one case, actually, we're, I'll, I'll get to this, but there is a fart joke in this, uh, this or the next chapter, I think this chapter, which is remarkably involved and hinges on a classical illusion that is honestly remarkably specific and subtle. Like, it's, honestly, it is far too far to go out of your way for a fart joke, and I'm really impressed Ishmael did it. <laughs> Well, I have forgotten what this was, uh, so I look forward to being unpleasantly surprised as well. <laughs> um, so, but after explaining uh, the the attraction that the ocean holds for people, um, at which he summarizes in, by saying, it is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life, and this is the key to it all. Well, specifically, he's, he's talking there about, um, he's referencing the story of Narcissus. So, you know, guy gets obsessed with his own uh, reflection in the water and ultimately starves staring at it and turns into a flower, you know, as one does. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's not, it's, he's claiming that there's, that like one's own nature is found in uh, oceans. But also, I think that, I think that does tie into the self-destructive element. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's saying that there is something in the ocean that everyone tries to grasp, the ungraspable phantom of life, like the thing that everyone is haunted by. Yeah. Um, and uh, then after saying all that, he goes on to clarify that when I say I'm going to sea, I don't mean that I go as a passenger or uh, any kind of officer or a cook. Uh, I always just go as a regular abled, able-bodied seaman, um, which uh, is a very practical thing to suddenly sort of switch gears to, to clarify yeah, what type of job position he tends to hold. It's practical, and it's really, it's a real switch from, like, the melancholy and the philosophical to a paragraph that ends with um, a long digression on how much he likes uh, basically broiled chicken. Like... Okay, it's not a really... long digression by the standards of this book, though. It's only a couple okay. sentences. It's a long digression by the standards of any human being talking about, by the way, I really like broiled chickens. Like, that's... It's true. He, he draws in the ancient Egyptian mummification practices. It's a digression. It, it is absolutely a digression. Um, and, uh... The, the reason maybe why, um after he's explained the the philosophical heights of the fatal attraction to the ocean, he then switches into giving us the details on the type of job that he held, um, is that uh, he goes on to kind of elliptically explain that he's from a family of some kind, or from a family, 
everyone's from a family. <laughs> I mean, he's he's from like a family of aristocrats. Well, it's it's sort of aristocrats. It's the the specific quotation uh, is um, that uh, you know at first this sort of thing, by which he means being a sailor before the mast, a very you know basically someone who's expected to go and haul rope and get shouted at in all kinds of weather, um, and it's actually a pretty dangerous job as well, which is part of why it satisfies his uh, death urge. Um, at first, this sort of thing is unpleasant enough. It touches one's sense of honor, particularly if you come of an old established family in the land, the Van Rensselaers, or Randolphs, or Hardicanutes, which I don't actually know if there's ever been a New England family called the Hardicanutes, because that really sounds like a biblical name. But then again, New England families, so... Uh, it the the version that I have says that this is the uh, king of Denmark and England in the early 11th century AD. So I think he's sort of jokingly comparing the yeah. Van Rensselaers and Randolphs, which like are important families in yeah. the Americas, to something much more old and established. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then. He, um, he also actually goes on to get the closest to actually giving any sort of background on himself that's more that's specific by saying, and more than all, if just previous to putting your hand into the tar pot, which is a reference to the, basically to keeping ropes up and doing um, uh, sailor work, it's why sailors were called jack tars, is the use of tar on a boat to basically do most things. Um, you have been lording it as a country schoolmaster, making the tallest boys stand in awe of you. The transition is a keen one, I assure you, from a schoolmaster to a sailor, and requires a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin Barrett. So, we know who Ishmael was to some extent. He clearly came from a moneyed or at least uh, important family, but then he became a country schoolmaster, which implies that, uh, or maybe, yeah, country schoolmaster, which implies that they weren't, you know, particularly rich, or if they were, he was he was already not particularly interested in availing himself of the family's wealth. And now he's seems to be basically disconnected from any kind of family and uh, wandering around getting jobs on boats. Yeah, he's... So the, I mean, it, it... Being willing to go find a job on a, on a whaling vessel... Um, Means he's essentially homeless. Yeah, no, he's he's basically homeless, and like in the next chapter, he's he talks a bunch about the miseries of sleeping in the snow out on the, uh, and you know, desperately trying to find an inn to stay at. So, yeah. Um, but uh, luckily, I guess uh, our good friend Ishmael just sort of explains that. Oh well. All the injustices you have to bear as a sailor being shouted at and kicked and ordered around, that uh, these are all just kind of part of the suffering of life that everyone has to to bear and isn't something that uh, God would look down on him for. Um, So, uh, that's... And specifically, it's, uh, do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me? And that's interesting because there's going to be a guy named Gabriel much... Much, 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 much later uh, in the book, who has a really weird relationship both to the angel who he believes himself to be and to the formal like hierarchy of authority on a ship. 
So um, put a pin in that one for, you know, the year uh, 2077 when our cyber brains will have finished producing this web co- this podcast. <laughs> I don't think it's going to take that long. Um, I mean, no, but I, I don't want to tempt fate or whales. Fair. Uh, so, um, so to clarify, he does at this point admit uh, that, you know, you go as a sailor because they pay you for it because being paid is really nice. Yeah, there's a there's a very strong sense of like ah philosophy and you know I go because of this deep darkness in my soul and but but also I I need money. I give me money, please. Yes. Uh, and uh, then, of course, he says uh, that there's uh, excellent exercise involved. It's just sort of a catalog of reasons to go to sea at this point. Um, this is this is actually where the fart joke is. Oh, is it? Uh, so it's finally I always go to sea as a sailor because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim. So for the most part, the commodore on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. Now, you might think that's a very elliptical or indirect fart joke, except the Pythagorean maxim is uh, from the the mystery cult founded around Pythagoras, uh, the geometer, um, which specifically believed in the transmigration of souls into beans. Like, human souls are stored in white beans. I cannot, for the life of me, remember why. I think it might be some relationship to the shape of the fetus i i honestly don't know but the pythagorean maxim is don't eat beans so what he's saying is headwinds are more common than winds from a stern unless you eat beans jesus and then also he talks about how the commode or uh on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand oh gross okay it's super gross it's 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 such a Again, he just went all the way out of his way to make a terrible fart joke, a really dumb one, and one that involves an obscure classical illusion. That's welcome that's to the our book. Boy. <laughs> Call him Ishmael. <laughs> he'll be here all week. Um, he'll be here for multiple years. That's what happens when you sign up for a whaling journey. Yeah, seriously, being here all week would imply some really dark events very soon. Uh. <sighs> Anyway, immediately after uh, making a multi-sentence fart joke, he goes on to talk about uh, the fates and uh, the reason that, like, he has... Oh my gosh, sorry. Um, I misread this and I thought I was uh, at a different section of the book. Um, But... um, the point being, the end of this chapter sort of wraps up with the last of his motives. Because like, he is he is uh, listing motives, um, but the last mm-hmm. of the motives that he has is uh, the mystery of the actual whale. The desire to see whales, basically. Well, no, I th- the, the fates are here. It's uh, in Loomings. It's, oh! Um, so the next bit is... Um, the, the next bit after the fart joke uh, does have him talking about uh, the idea that there's um, some invisible force guiding him into his role in the narrative, uh, which is a really, 
Again, it's an odd thing for your protagonist to say early on in his incredibly digressive work that um, those stage managers, the fates, put me down for this shabby part of a whaling voyage, when others were set down for magnificent parts in high tragedies, and short and easy parts in genteel comedies and jolly parts in farces, which is a very strange statement to make when he's theoretically, you know, he's not experiencing it bit by bit. He's supposed to be recounting this back to us, and so he's already gone through what can only be described as a grand tra tragedy, a jolly farce, and occasionally a genteel comedy. Uh, he's he's definitely, uh, I think in this moment, kind of um, stating by denying it that this story stands in the, you know, the halls of history with, like, other grand narratives. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right. And I'm just also, uh, for my own reasons, very curious about this, the idea that there's this, um, this sort of metafictional, uh, you know, powers above the stage uh, manipulating him, because uh, in this case, that would be Melville rather than Ishmael, sort of, and there's this, the idea that Ishmael's like, huh, there's someone poking around uh, who's also a very odd fellow. First yeah. of all, it's cute. But secondly, it's, it's interesting, especially given that this, uh, this book is not going to shy away from being metafictional, weird, and occasionally experimental. So things like that sort of stand out. Yeah, it's true. Also, also, um when he sort of lists the bill for the uh, for the grand program of Providence as grand contested election for the presidency of the United States, whaling voyage by one Ishmael, bloody gap battle in Afghanistan is like the major events. Uh, I do note that at least in the version I've got, it's not like whaling voyage by one Ishmael is written in in like tiny script or... Uh, you know, italicized or anything. It's it's just there, co-equal with bloody battle in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the very next line, he refers to the part he has as a shabby part of a whaling voyage. But yeah, I think he's kind of joking around and saying, oh, the idea of my voyage being announced in a newspaper, while also doing the very aggrandizing thing of, like, writing mm -hmm. down this entire novel. So... I, I think yeah. there is, like, this real tension of, like, oh, does he think it's important or not? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And it's also, it also points to, I think, uh, I think sort of subtly, the fact that he's really not the main character. Or rather, he is the main character, but in terms of all of the narratives that he wanders through, he barely takes part in any of them in an active sense. Mm. Like, yeah, he's he's a, he's a very passive and, like, descriptive character yeah like i can think of a few cases where he does something that has a meaningful effect on the plot but i can think of, think of a lot more cases where he's just sort of around uh, like he's around and sometimes people would be like hey ishmael you're cool or you know hey ishmael come hang out with us and he's just sort of like sure and then wanders over and witnesses something else He's, uh, yeah. he's, he's, he's definitely got that odd, like, almost, I mean, okay, he's not like, in any way like a silent RPG protagonist. He has lots of qualities. <laughs> uh, but he is very much defined by being at the, uh, sort of being a viewpoint 
character while also yeah. being like incredibly his personality is uh impossible to avoid because it's all over every sentence he's this yep kind of nervous uh one might say like overeducated uh like very very oddly christian but very deeply christian person mm-hmm. um he's very gay <laughs> yeah i mean look it's 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 just fair it's just fair to describe him as that that's true although we haven't seen that yet but yes uh he is definitely attracted to men that's yes. simply a fact um, i'm just saying that he's i think very relatable to the millennial generation <laughs> yes very uh very depressed as well <laughs> yes uh, but really into uh, dumb jokes and memes. I, I, I don't know that uh, I'm quite willing to go with you in that particular statement. But <laughs> Okay, so... af- after the, like, quarter page fart joke. But that's not a meme, that's just a dumb joke. Like, uh, what you're kind uh... of saying is Ishmael would like meme culture, and I'm not sure what I make of that at all. That's fair. I just think that the image of Ishmael as a stereotypical millennial is very funny. Yes. Personally. It, it warms my horrible little heart. <laughs> so, speaking of getting warm, let's move on to the next chapter. Chapter mm. two. Or, oh, sorry, did I... Yeah, do we... Well, do we want to touch on... Uh, you, you were starting to, to mention it when... Sorry, I digressed us back to the fates. But his um his stuff about loving to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Oh yeah, so that's uh so that's the very end of the first chapter where yeah. he explains that, and I think the implication is this is kind of the best or highest or maybe most meaningful reason of all is this curiosity that he has, this desire to see things that he hasn't seen before, um, and uh, um. So he uh, talks about such a portentous and mysterious monster roused all my curiosity. That's how he refers to his his desire to go and see the whale. Um, And I almost see this as something like him kind of reclaiming his free will from the fates, which was the previous section. Mm. So there's been this section about how he's being, you know, stage managed into this role by the fates. Uh, but now he's talking about, you know, this is why I want to go. These are the feelings that I have that drive me that are not just about, like, avoiding my own depressive feelings, but that yeah. are positive. I think that's fair, but I also think that there's a there's an undercurrent of these that connects them back to his uh, sort of his depressive or self-destructive feelings when he's, he's talking about, like, a, a grand... Xenophilia isn't quite the right word, but like this this desire for both the new and the strange. Um, he describes it as, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. And I can't help but compare that to his uh, fixation on the ocean. This um, There's this sort of uh, desire for things that he can't express or can't, uh, can't really grapple with. Like, frankly, I think it's an almost religious desire. It's just being expressed positively and negatively, where he wants to be brought face-to-face with... Actually, let me just quote him here, because it's... Um, 
by reason of these things, then, the wailing voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul, endless processions of the whale, and mid most of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. Like, that's a almost a religious vision of, like, he wants he wants the numinous in the shape of a really big aquatic mammal. Yes, absolutely. So, in search of the numinous, into the next chapter, uh, into the cold, rainy, snowy night. Uh, because yep. now we're with Ishmael, actually trying to get onto that whaling ship. Um... And uh, it transpires that he wants to sail from Nantucket rather than any other place. Um, so he, he, he's arrived in New Bedford, which is the port that you have to sail from to reach the island of Nantucket. Um, and the island of Nantucket is famous for whaling. So that's, he sort of, for that romantic reason, he goes on to explain that, uh, you know, Nantucket is the original place that whaling came from even though other places may have become more famous he, he also um, he calls it um the tire of this carthage which is just again he just loves his incredibly abstruse comparisons and grandiose uh statements in order to say that you know uh and then he immediately talks about how uh according to uh myth the first um whaling sloop to put off from Nantucket, carried a bunch of uh, cobblestones to throw at the whale to determine if they were close enough to throw one of their few expensive harpoons. Oh my goodness. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a remarkable swing from like this image of this grand uh, metropolis of whaling to, yeah, thump. <laughs> yes. Uh... So this then leads to the fact that he has to wait for the next uh, ship to Nant or the next like little you know little uh, boat to Nantucket. So he's got to find somewhere to stay for the next couple of days in New Bedford. Um, and uh, he walks through the city and passes by a couple of different inns and looks at their signs. Um, and he keeps finding, thinking that uh, it looks too nice in there, and so he won't be able to afford it. Yep, he um, he specifically has this, uh, again, in his just dedication to uh, either religious or naval metaphors. Um, With anxious grapnels I had sounded my pocket and only brought up a few pieces of silver, uh, is his way of saying he was broke. Um, and a, or... a grapnel is a grappling hook. Uh, which it's, is... It's not actually quite. Um, or there's... Sorry, there's different versions of grapnel. You should you should continue. Oh, okay. The way grapnel is cited in the version that I have, it just says a grappling hook. But, um... Oh, well, no, they're, they're just wrong then. <laughs> Pushes up glasses, makes obnoxious sniffing noise. Uh, excuse me, but actually a grapnel in this case is a, is a, is a plumb bob. It's a, it's a leaded or sometimes hooked, like, mini anchor that you lower off of a boat to determine the, uh, the depth and to sound out for, um, for anchoring points. Oh, I see. So when he says he had... Okay, with anxious grapnels I had sounded my pocket, what that means is... I used, like, a plumb bob to find the bottom of my pockets. 
okay. there's nothing down there. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's, what he means is he like stuck his hand in and like rattled it around looking for a few more coins. Yeah, I mean, I got that part. Uh, uh, I think that mostly I just had a bad citation that gave me a very different mental image yeah. of what he was doing. It's more sort of nope. a clawing motion rather than a like seeking the bottom. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's perfectly fine. I just, um, am feeling incredibly smug right now. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I, I think it's very likely that the citation that I'm using is just wrong because this is just powermobydick.com, which is a website you can all go to to find Moby Dick for free. With There's uh, also a very nice Project Gutenberg. Yes, um, I just like Power Moby Dick because it does define some words although obviously yeah. not perfectly all the time well i mean this this it is generally speaking like a, a grappling tool it's just that the point is that you lower it down into the water to um find anchor points if i'm if i'm actually incorrect about that though i'm pretty sure i'm not uh somebody let me know in no uncertain terms um so he kind of wanders about trying to find a place that seems uh as like that that D trying to dingy? find a, yeah a, trying to find an inn that looks cheap enough for him basically uh and he eventually stumbles into a building um which he thinks is an inn just because uh, he stumbles over the ash box in front of it which is a um you know, like, they would keep ashes to spread on the snow, I think, in the same way we would use salt. Um, so he trips over that, and he's like, oh, great, this must also be a public house, I guess. Um, and he pokes his head in, and it's not. It's a black church. Um, so that's a weird little paragraph where he realizes that it's a church, and he sort of pokes his head back out immediately yep yep uh and it's specifically i think it's worth noting that the um the preacher's text uh is about the weeping and wailing and teeth gnashing uh in you know hell so there's this um and he mistakes it for a an inn called the trap though i'm really not clear on where he got that name because he passed um He'd passed uh, the crossed harpoons and the swordfish in, and both of which he decided were um, too nice, too um, too warm seeming, and definitely too expensive. But I think that the the thing with the church is basically so that he can uh, mutter about wretched entertainment at the sign of the trap, uh, in reference to sermons about uh, perdition. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it's definitely a, a weird little moment where it's he's weird. It's absolutely weird. The the fact that it would be shocking for a white man to suddenly enter a black church to kind of create the sense of I don't know disease. Yeah, um, I yeah, I honestly don't know ultimately what that's going for, other than that little thing about perdition. Yeah, no, that's true. And then finally, the next place he finds looks run down enough uh this is called the spouter inn and the um it's the specifically the spouter inn uh peter coffin who's presumably the the innkeeper um which is also a ridiculous uh bit of foreshadowing for like i think literally the last two chapters 
Oh my goodness. Okay. I look yeah. forward to him dying then, I guess, or something. You... There's certainly a coffin involved. Oh, great. <laughs> but, um... Uh, and in fact, coffin, spouter, rather ominous in that particular connection, thought I. Yeah, Ishmael, great. You're writing the goddamn book. You know what's going to happen at the end. You... I just think it's very rich for a... Uh, for someone who is a both a terrible storyteller and the narrator to uh, claim to have felt foreshadowing, <laughs> I, I just think he's being a little bit smug right there. Shakes uh, fist at Melville. Yeah. So once he ends up inside the Spouter Inn, uh, he goes into a long tangent about basically how nice it is to be inside and warm when it's cold outside uh and what makes this and and how glad he was basically to get indoors um and this uh turns into a weird uh like metaphor about dives who is like a um what do you call it like an allegorical figure for a rich mm-hmm. man um yeah, no, he also has here what I think is just a truly fantastic little bit where he talks about, uh, in judging of that tempestuous wind called Euryclidon, Euroclidon? Eurocli- I don't called, know. I'm just going to say E. That tempestuous wind called E, says an old writer, of whose works I possess the only copy extant, it maketh a marvellous difference whether thou lookest out at it from a glass window where the frost is all on the outside, or whether thou observest it from that sashless window where the frost is on both sides, and of which the white death is the only glazier. And I'm pretty sure that one's supposed to be something Ishmael made up on the spot. Like, it's super overwrought, it's It's exact... I don't think that's a quotation from any actual other fiction or other other writing. Yeah, and it's it's a, an old writer of who, any time a, char- a character in a book claims that they have the only copy of a work they're quoting, you know that the author definitely made it up. And in this case, I think uh, I think it, Melville is specifically saying Ishmael made it up, especially because the like the overwrought style of it is almost impossible to tell apart. Other than the extra, you know, maketh and a lookest out um, from the later uh, elaboration on Dives and uh, Lazarus. Yeah, it's uh, it's very similar, and it's basically all just uh, to the point of r- ruminating on how nice it's going to be to get inside. And uh, I should clarify: I said he's thinking all this after he got inside. No, he's not. He's thinking all of it while he's standing there on the curb. Yep, trying to decide if he's going to step into the house, and he has to go through this elaborate process of quotations and allegories to decide, let us scrape the ice from our frosted feet and see what sort of a place this spouter may be. It's just... Oh, also there's a pun in this this phrase where he says, but no more of this blubbering now, we are going a-wailing. And there is plenty of that yet to come. Oh my god. Yeah. I, I, I really like this book, and also I don't know how I'm going to put up with Ishmael for another, you know, 122 chapters. Sorry, that's that's incorrect. That would be 133 chapters. Well, we've uh, reached the end of our readings for today. So, um, 
What do you make of uh, chapters one and two? I think they're a really good introduction to Ishmael as like, as an odd person, and that's really all they are. So if you were expecting any plot whatsoever in the first two chapters, as opposed to pure description and uh, like framing, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, yeah, I think that's true. That made that definitely made the summaries kind of hard to write. Um, yeah. He, um, it's all him. I mean, okay, we're going to run into a lot of that in the future as well. There, there are huge sections where you, they can basically be summarized as Ishmael faffs about verbally for a while. Um, I love them, by the way. They're great. But oh, yeah. there, there isn't anything resembling a plot in, I want to say, about a third of the chapters, and I might be lowballing it. Well, uh, I don't think it's a problem because we've uh, found plenty of stuff to talk about. Oh, yeah, no, no. The plot is, like absolutely secondary in this sort of, in in for what the fun things are to talk about but oh i'm just oh also um i just think that the uh the digressions are so much fun um most of the time like there's a few of them that are very self-serious but even those like the one with Dives and lazarus uh ends with basically a punchline which is uh it's all about how you know the one, the Lazarus who's stuck out, you know, who's the sort of figure for a homeless person in this case, who's stuck outside in the cold, lying on 10 inches of hoary ice and shivering and, you know, death uh, comes for him. But at the same time, uh, um, and, you know, I think there's a sense of injustice there as well when um, Ishmael says, not super judgmentally, Ishmael's really bad at being judgmental. He's not good at it. Uh because he says, you know, um, now that Lazarus should lie stranded there on the curbstone before the door of Devis, that is more wonderful than that an iceberg should be moored to one of the Malukas. M Malukas? I, I honestly don't know how to pronounce that island chain. Um, I just know it is islands. I've never said it out loud. But, so he has this sort of sense of, look, this is clearly unfair, but at the same time, uh, he continues with, Yet Devis himself, he too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen size, and being a president of a temperance society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. So, on the one hand, you know, certainly not being nice about Devis, who drinks the tepid tears of orphans. Yeah, that basically makes him sound like Skeletor. Yeah, or um, all I can think of is um, the Venture Brothers. It's powered by a forsaken child? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, which, you know. Which was literally about using an orphan for these things. So, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, it's talking about how Devis too is made kind of miserable by his position in society. It's not claiming he's made more miserable, and it's a lot more harsh towards him than towards the, the Lazarus in this allegory. But there's this sense of, I mean, it showed up in the first uh, chapter of, um, uh, you know, this idea that, um, okay, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, punched around by my captain. And this is like a, you know, a ship in the early 1800s, maybe even late 1700s. I can't remember when, um, when precisely the book is set, other than that it's the heyday of whaling. But um, it's, there's this idea that, like, Oh yeah, you know, the captain may have the authority to lash me and beat me and, you know, if I attempt to, if I dis 
uh, disapprove. It's a mutiny, and he could probably have me killed. But, you know, ultimately what goes around comes around, you know. Uh, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right, that everybody else is one way or other served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thump is passed round, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. And that's just a really odd perspective on, I personally am suffering injustice, but you know, if you take the large perspective, doesn't everyone suffer injustice? So why should I be mad about the fact that I specifically, and people like me, are made miserable by these other people? It's, and I think that's part of his odd, like, his, or not odd per se, but his religious perspective. Yeah. Is uh, believing that, um, you know, the sort of, even, like, being directly kind of oppressed by other people is still all kind of part of the general suffering of life in this veil of tears, you know? Yeah. Um, he has a very, like, I mean, he has what people mean when they say he has a philosophical outlook on something. Yeah. Which is to say he has, like, a philosophical perspective on it that allows him to not be bothered by things that sort of seem like by rights they ought to bother him. Yeah, and it's it's very odd because he's certainly not a he's certainly kind of a high strung and certainly sensitive person. He's uh you know, dealing with his um self destructive impulses by going and doing something very dangerous on the ocean. He's not insensitive to all of these things, or particularly insensitive to like misfortunes on his own part, but he's so dedicated to this particular, I wanna say like universalist sense of brotherhood that even where someone else is obviously abusing it, his response is basically, okay. Yeah, he's he can he's a little bit of a pushover in that way. He's an immense pushover. He's kind of a sponge. Yeah, a little bit. Like he's really likable, but um I honestly can't think of a single time that someone suggests something and he like stands up to them or dis like he he, he goes with the flow. <laughs> That's true. Well, I think that about wraps it up, because we've discussed the sections that we were going to discuss, and uh, we've uh, been talking for about an hour and 15 minutes or so, um, which is about how long I think this should be. So, uh, yeah. to wrap things up, um, do you want to tell people your twitter handle or anything else that you want to like uh, let folks know about online um wow this is not something i thought of at all it's suddenly it's an existentially terrifying concept uh i mean i guess my twitter handle is at silken stone like the two materials on uh on twitter.com i honestly don't think it's that important to follow because it's mostly just me retweeting things um yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm at Char Asnablunt. Um, <laughs> Sorry, fuck. Oh, yeah, did you forget? I, I, for I forgot, yeah. I, I thought you were still using the, like, really straightforward Twitter handle and that completely... Um, yeah, no, I'm that at... Was, I, that was like a truck. Yeah, like Char Asnable from anime, but blunt at the end. Like weed. Yes. <laughs> from weed. <laughs> From uh, the marijuana plant. 
Okay, but now I have to ask the question. I'm not going to ask if you think uh, Ishmael would smoke, because I think we already know the answer to that. But would he be obnoxious about it? Uh, I... He's really poor all the time, so I don't think he would have, like, uh, precise, you know, preferences or anything. I think he'd just be happy to smoke whatever he's got. Yeah, that's fair. I... By obnoxious about it, I mostly meant, like, uh... The kind of person who makes weed jokes 24-7? I... Yes. Like me? Not entirely. <laughs> Let's end the podcast. Oh, no. No, not like that.